Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Psalm 56. We're spending this summer in the Psalms, and we like to do this every summer, but I'm especially glad that we are doing it this summer because this summer is sending all of us to the end of our ropes. And I've noticed that whenever we're at the end of our rope, one of two things tend to happen. We either turn away from God or we cry out to God. And I'm so glad we're in the Psalms in this moment in history because each Sunday, these psalms are going to nudge us and sometimes shove us into crying out to God. This morning, I want to look at Psalm 56 with you all. I'll read the text and you can follow along. This is God's word. To the choir master, according to the dove on, the, on far off terebinths, a mictam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh or mere mortals do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape, and wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put tears in your bottle, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God, for I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Lord, may the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer, our sun, and our shield. Holy Spirit, empower the words of the sermon. I pray that by your spirit, your word would change us, transform us in the ways that you need to. Through conviction, through comfort, we lay our hearts before you now. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. Well, I want to tell you about two devices in my house. We have a toy drone, and I'm also talking about my Amazon Kindle. Just this past week, we charged both of these two devices. At full charge, the toy drone lasted three whole minutes. At full charge, my Amazon Kindle, I've been using it night and day, all week, is probably still at 94% charge. Now, if I'm comparing myself to these two devices, I would love to tell you that I'm like the Kindle, but the truth is I am like the toy drone. I take a long time to charge, and then by the time 10 a.m. rolls around, I am drained. 
And I do all the good recharging things. Trust me, I, I exercise, I try to eat well, I try to go to bed on time. But even so, lately it seems like I am drained. Dr. Jacqueline Gullen of Northwestern University, what probably many of you are experiencing too. She calls it caution fatigue. She writes, when lockdowns were first announced, many people were charged with energy and a desire to flatten the curve. And now many weeks in, the prolonged cocktail of stress, anxiety, isolation, and disrupted routines has left many people feeling drained. Now, she wrote this weeks into the pandemic, and now we are months into the pandemic. It's almost August, and I think caution fatigue is only growing as we face our fears and anxieties about school in the fall, about work, about family. See, nothing drains our batteries more and faster than fear. Now, let me be clear. Fear can be a gift. Uh, It alerts us to dangerous situations. It alerts us to dangerous people. It serves us and it serves our loved ones well when it functions well. And many of us are afraid of legitimate things. But fear can also work against us, can't it? And I've noticed two ways in my lifetime about how fear can work against me. The first is when I and we all ignore our fears. This is when we ignore that there's something wrong. Sometimes when I'm in a public place and I overhear an uncomfortable conversation, I will conspicuously plug an ear and kind of hum to myself because I want to block it out. I don't want to be party to whatever they're talking about. That can be how we approach fear and the objects of our fear. We just hum it out. But there's another error too. It's when we indulge our fears. It's when we allow our fear to have the first and final word in our day, which means the first and final word of our weeks, which means the first and final word of our months, years, and life. Fear is a tool that is meant to serve us, but too often it becomes serve. Think of what author C.S. Fame says, we either temptuously or don't tear at all. We we ignore them or we indulge them. The same can be true about fear. But what does God want us to do with our fears? Uh, This psalm that we just read shows us the way. We don't indulge our fears. We don't ignore our fears. What do we do? We entrust our fears to God. So entrusting our fears to God instead of ignoring them means that we name them, just like David does in this psalm. I wonder if you noticed it. First, David names his fears in the very title of the psalm. I don't know if you knew this, but David did not name this psalm 56. He didn't even name it In God I Trust. Those are all the editors. What he did name it, though, is To the Choir Master, According to the Dove on Far Off Terebinths, which is probably a popular song back then, or a well-known worship melody. Then he says, A mictim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So what David is doing is right before we even sing and pray this psalm, he's calling attention to a chapter in his life when he was deeply afraid. And this chapter you can actually read about in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He was afraid of Saul. And so he sought refuge in a hometown of none other than Goliath. So if you're David and you're running for your life in fear and you make a list of all the places that you can seek to find refuge in Goliath's hometown, 
is on the top of your list, you know the things are bad. Derek Kidner, he actually calls this the courage of despair in David's life. Here's my point. David doesn't ignore his fear. He names it. He front loads this prayer and this song with it. Second, David names his fears in verse 3. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. The literal Hebrew here says, at the very moment, I'm afraid. So David doesn't downplay or ignore his fear at all. He is naming it, and he's inviting us to name it too. And then third, David names his fears with the strongest possible language. All throughout verses 1 and 2 and 5, 6 and 7, if you look down at the text, David tries to capture the intensity of his fear through poetically precise language. And I'll just go down the list. Trample, oppress, attack, injure, evil, strife, lurk, watch, wait. David doesn't downplay or water down his fears. He names them. To be a Christian, in other words, is to have an emotional vocabulary and a willingness to name our fears. And I just wonder if you've done that at all. Or maybe it's been a while. I'll just even just pause for a moment for you to consider your fears and to name them like David just named in this psalm. See, we don't ignore them. We also, entrusting our fears to God means that we, instead of indulging them, we allow them to pivot us to trust. We entrust our lives and the objects of our fear and our fear itself to God. The momentum of fear, in other words, can move us into trust if we allow it. This is what David does in verse 3. When I put my trust in you, and at the very moment I put my trust in you, he doesn't ignore them, them, he entrusts his fears to God. Now, how can we do the same? How can we do the same? Well, we need to embrace what Psalm 56 actually has to say about the God in whom we're trusting. And there are two major reasons from this psalm that we can entrust our fears to God. It's what I like to call the godness of God and the goodness of God. So first, the godness of God means that we can entrust our fears to him because he is God and we are not. We can entrust our fears to him because he is the mighty God of the universe and we are not. And this is David's strategy. He reminds himself in this song and he points us to this song of God's sheer godness. And in two ways, God's majesty and God's justice. First, God is utterly majestic in this psalm and in reality. That's the heartbeat of, heartbeat of verses 1 through 4. Ultimately, in light of God's majesty, what can, David says, flesh do to me? I like what the NIV calls this, mere mortals. What can mere mortals do to me in light of God's majesty? When God is small, people and circumstances are big. But when God is big, people and circumstances are small. And we will not entrust our fears to God 
if our God is too small. And second, God is utterly just. That's the heartbeat of verses 5 through 7, which ends with the cry, In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. David is refraining in this verse from any person's vengeance and prayer. He's doing his enemies. God roll down, and which will make things right. This psalm takes vengeance out of our hands and places it into the mighty right hand of God. Now we might ask, how does this verse, verse 7, square with Jesus commanding us to love our enemies? Well, first we need to remember that Jesus came to the world that he made to die for his enemies on the cross. To love his enemies. That's what Jesus did. He came to love his enemies. And so we can love our enemies because we are first a loved enemy. To receive the work of the cross is to be a loved enemy. And then second, consider how the justice of God is the only true pathway to enemy love. Paul echoes this psalm in Romans 12. He says this, and listen along. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's God's word. And what Paul is saying there is what, I like how Miroslav Volf puts it, the practice of nonviolence, and I would add enemy love, requires a belief in vengeance. That Miroslav says, because God and God alone make things right. And because of that truth, the burden and the never-ending cycle of retaliation is lifted, and that's when we can actually pity and even exercise loving actions toward our enemies. God is just. But to do this, and in order to do this, God must be big. I mean, real big. I like how Mark Buchanan puts it. He says, most of our problems in life are because our thoughts of God are too small. And notice I said, our thoughts of God are too small. And so what we need to do is we need to align our ideas about God with reality. When I was a teenager, I didn't as often go to my dad for advice. I thought I was wiser than him, as I'm sure uh, most teenagers do. And my, thought, my thoughts, in other words, about my dad and of my dad were small. But the older I got, the more I appreciated that my dad had wisdom and experience that I didn't have. And so I started to call him more for advice and for wisdom. Nothing at all changed about my dad. What changed was my perception of my dad. In my thinking, he got bigger and bigger, and frankly, more in line with reality. The same needs to happen with God. We need to see God for who he is. He is majestic. He is totally just. And the bigger God gets in our hearts, the more inclined we will be to entrust our fears to him. See, it is one thing to entrust our fears to a philosophy, 
or to a political philosophy or a political figure. It's quite another to entrust ourselves to the living God. The one who created your breath. The one who sustains your breath today, right now. And the one who will give you your breath again in the new heavens and in the new earth. The one who will right all wrongs with his mighty right hand. We entrust our fears to God, the living God. And so I think what we need to recover this summer is the godness of God. And I think we can begin by just simply praying verse 4 at the start of our mornings, in the middle of our days, and even at the end of our days. We can pray, God, in you I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We can entrust our fears to God because the godness of God. But second, we can entrust our fears to God because he is good. He is a good God. We see the goodness of God in three ways in the psalm. God sees, God sides, and God speaks. First, God sees. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So like many of you these days, if I'm totally honest, I've struggled more with sleep. I can toss and I can turn. And this was true, especially in March. God sees this. He sees this. He holds the running total of tossings and turnings on your bed. And like many of you these days, tears have been flowing more readily and more surprisingly than usual. God sees this. He sees it, and he has put all of them in his bottle. Now, this does not mean that God is some cosmic sadist. It does mean, though, that God identifies with your sorrows. I mean, after all, God the Son wept. After all, God the Son couldn't sleep in Gethsemane. God is more reliably present in your struggles than your perceived victories. That's what this means. God sees you. So I don't know what you're going through right now, but God sees it. God sees it. He sees your tears when no one else does. He knows your tossings when no one else sees them. But God also sides. He he only sees his people. He sides with his people. Look at verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. See, God not only sees injustice, He not only sees our weakness, but He identifies with the weak, and He identifies with the victims of injustice. So much so that in Jesus, He became a victim of injustice on the cross. Jesus sides with His own. This is the miracle of the gospel. In our sin, we are against God. And God is against us. We deserve the wrath that's described in verse 7 in our sin. But in Christ, God is no longer against us. He is for us. Can you believe it? That's the miracle of the gospel. That God, the godness of God, the just God, is for us. And then finally, God speaks. He speaks. He sees, he sides with his people, and he speaks to his people. Look at verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light 
of life. He says this after verse 12, where he says, I must perform my vows to you and I will render thank offerings to you. So what's happening here is David is inviting us to worship God on behalf of what? On behalf of verse 13. And what's verse 13? It is what one scholar calls an anticipated praise. The things in verse 13 haven't happened yet in David's life. The deliverance hasn't happened yet in David's life. The salvation spoken of in verse 13 hasn't happened yet in David's life. But David is thanking God and he's praising God as if it has already happened. As one scholar puts it, my former Old Testament professor, when God speaks, it's as good as done. When God speaks, it's as good as done. And so we can praise him in advance and on behalf of his promises and his word. Uh, Justin Early, who's an author, but he's also a corporate lawyer. And when he asks, whenever anybody asks him what he does for a living, uh, he replies this way. He says, as a corporate lawyer, I create things out of nothing with words. As a lawyer... He actually creates corporations and organizations and businesses with mere words. And he describes this as a miracle of sorts. One moment an organization exists, the next mo- the one minute organization doesn't exist, the next minute it does. And the only thing between this moment and that moment is a word. It's literally words on a page, spoken and written. David knew that this is how God works with his words. And that's why he could entrust his fears to God because of his word. And if you look at this text, verse 10, for instance, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, David understands if God says it, it's as good as done, and he can therefore entrust his fears to God. But here's the thing, that's David. We know more today than David did then. David, the king of Israel, we know more today on this side of Jesus' life, ministry, resurrection, ascension, we know more about God's word of promise than David did. See, David entrusts his fears to a word of promise that is described in the book of Hebrews as a shadow. We have seen the real substance. We have seen the word of promise made flesh. We have seen Jesus, who not only memorized this psalm, who not only sang this psalm, but lived this psalm, fulfilled this psalm, enfleshed this psalm. Jesus is Psalm 56 with arms and legs. And when we read verses 5 through 6 in this, and I would encourage you to take a look at that, how can we not think of Holy Week, where Jesus' enemies watched him, and we were among them? by the way, and where his enemies lurked, and we too were among them. And instead of sending verse 7 on us, Jesus had divine wrath sent down on him instead and out of love for us. See, God is God, but the word made flesh tells us something. It tells us that God is good as well. If all we said, and if all I said is God is God, put your put your trust in him. Many of you might say, good sermon, Joe, but would leave this sermon and never entrust your fears to him. 
But what if God is God and God is good? What if God was not only God enough to handle your fears, but good enough to have our best interest in mind? And that's what some of us need to know right now. As we face the fall and as we face the decisions that we have to make with work, as we face what's happening in our world, we need to hear from God directly that God is for his people. And for us to believe that, we need to see the right hand, the mighty right hand of God. And we also need to see the scar that is on that mighty right hand. He is God. Oh, but he is good. We can trust him. So let me just ask you a few questions. What or whom are you tempted to trust when you are most afraid? Just think about that right now. What is your default trust when you are most afraid? When you lose your breath a bit because you think of that thing or that circumstance or that person or that scenario, when you start to get afraid and it starts crowding in on you and there's fears coming around you and attacking you proudly from on high, what is your default trust? I think this psalm would be good as a battle against those false trusts. What is mere mortal? that I would be afraid. And more than that, why am I trusting in mere mortals when I'm afraid? Let's put our trust in God. And let me ask you this too. Are you pressing pause on your worship and on your prayer until you have answers? Because I think David models for us and invites us actually to sing and to pray without the answers. In verse 12 and in verse 13, Remember, David doesn't have the, 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 the lived experience of deliverance. But he still goes and he still praises God in advance. Again, this is anticipatory praise. And I think this invites us, even as we sing it, and even if we don't feel it, if we pray this, if we, if we sing this, it will shape our hearts in such a way that we will start to praise God and even pray to God without needing resolution. That's so uncomfortable. Um, Every week at Friday Night Vespers, which, by the way, as a quick plug, I just want to encourage you, if you've never been uh, a part of the Friday Night Vespers and you feel like too much water has gone under the bridge with that, and to to click that in and you just go into this sort of insider club and you'd feel weird and awkward, I want to just encourage you to put that aside. Friday Night Vespers um, is an opportunity to pray and to lay before God our burdens, uh, both individually as a church and also as a community. Well, every week at Vespers, I get to pray with a dear friend, and I won't name names, but every time they praise God in advance. And it's taught me a lot. And frankly, it models David here in verse 12. When God speaks, it's as good as done. And when he speaks his promises, we need to praise him, even in advance. We can worship without all the answers. We have a choice this summer, friends. Uh, We can ignore our fears. We can downplay them. Or we can indulge them. I don't think any of us would willingly indulge our fears. But we can give them center stage. Or we can allow our fears to be the momentum and the pivot to trust. We can entrust our fears to God, who is good. Lord, we do 
that now. We, we admit and acknowledge the many things that create fear in us. And Lord, as they signal appropriate responses sometimes, sometimes they can spin out of control. And Lord, in those moments, I just pray that we would entrust them to you. You are God, you are holy, you are just, you will make all things new and you will right all wrongs and make straight all that is crooked and bent and broken. We can entrust injustice to you. We can place it into your mighty right hand in order to love our enemies. We also, Lord, can entrust our fears to you because you are good and your mighty right hand has scars. You are God and you are good. What is a mere mortal? We trust you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.